Morning, everybody. Today, my assignment is to share with you on Matthew 21. It was just read to you. And there's a whole lot in there. It's 46 verses. Where do you have it? Two or three people address me every day. It's all right. <clears throat> so... We'll just get after it. Um, Matthew 21, Jesus, it's his triumphant, starts with his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, as you just heard. Until now, Jesus has tried to stay out of the limelight. He's been almost withdrawn sometimes, um, hiding, because he would do miracles and large crowds follow him everywhere. And he wasn't ready to reveal who he was yet. But now in his last week of ministry, he's dramatically proclaiming his messiahship, his kingship. So this all took place on the Sunday before the crucifixion. Um, and it was kind of like an enacted parable. So let's have a prayer and we'll look at it. Holy Spirit, we thank you and praise you for the word of God that you inspired. And we don't want to hear from Brother Warren this morning. We want to hear from the throne of grace. We want to hear, so we ask you, Holy Spirit, the one who inspired the word, to come and minister life to us, this to this one, that to that one, something else to someone else, Lord, that we might be changed and might be a little more like Jesus when we leave than we were when we came in just because of your word that we sent and that is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. So we thank you for your word, and we give you all the glory and praise and honor for its working in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew 21, verse 1. Now then they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt, and her loose them and bring them to me. Anyone says anything to you, say the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So all was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, our king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, the colt of a foal of a donkey. So Jesus is quoting, um, they're quoting uh, Zechariah 9.9. 9. I'll read that to you. But um, this is the first prophecy that's being fulfilled. He's fulfilling one prophecy after another. Just boom, 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 boom. Um, a whole bunch of them in, in, this, in this section. But Zechariah 9.9 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. <clears throat> so let's continue reading verse 6. So the disciples went 
and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt and uh, laid their clothes on them and set them on them. And a very great multitude spread out their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them in the road. So in verse 8, we can see that they're laying out. We would say today that they're spreading the red carpet out for Jesus. It's a sign of royalty. Verse 9, then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried, saying. So there's a whole bunch of people ahead of them. People on both sides, hollering Hosanna, a multitude behind him. It was a, quite, a, quite a sight. <clears throat> so Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means saved one. So um, it was more than just a cry of acclamation. It was a plea from an oppressed people to their Savior for deliverance. Let's go on, verse 10. When he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. Now that word moved is a powerful word. Um, Let me give you some of the... It means to rock, to vibrate, agitate, tremble, Quake, shake, a great commotion. So it's safe to say that it was a great commotion. That word is the same word used in other places in the Bible for earthquake. And um, Dan and I experienced one in March of 2019. We were going to have coffee and an earthquake hit and the coffee cup just went across the table. Remember that? (laughs) So this was a great commotion. The whole city was stirred. Because he's coming in now, um, he's letting everybody know, he's proclaiming that he's his messiahship, his kingship. And when Jesus came, he brought the kingdom with him. Amen. Amen. All right. Remember I said up until now, Jesus was withdrawn, almost hiding at times. Uh, But now he's proclaiming his kingship. Now, in that culture, something you might not know, horses were associated with war, like a war horse. I think that might be where that came from. But a king riding on a donkey was a king of peace. And so Jesus came as someone who was going to establish peace, peace in our hearts. That peace that passes all understanding that the world knows not of. That's hard to explain. Donkeys were also uh, considered unclean animals. They represented Gentiles. Now, some scholars say that Jesus riding on a donkey into the city of the Jews was symbolic that he was master of all, Jew and Gentile. Matthew 21, verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple. As soon as he got to Jerusalem, he made his way to the temple. The temple was the heart of the Jewish religion, the command center, as it were, of the Jewish religion. Then Jesus went into the, te- went to, into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers 
in the seats of those who sold doves. He was cleansing the temple because there was many merchants there that were fraudulently um, selling things to the people. You know, they were using scales that were in their favor and selling them um, that were supposed to be clean animals for a clean animal price that weren't clean, that were unclean, these kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> Some say Jesus was pre-enacting the destruction of the temple. And it might very well be a lot of this was prophetic. And in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, let me read that to you. Malachi 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, the priests, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer the Lord an offering in righteousness. Hallelujah. Verse 13. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And you know, he's turning things over in air. And he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's quoting part of Isaiah 56, 7. But you have made it a den of thieves. That's quoting part of Jeremiah 7, 11. And verse 14. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now it's interesting that Jesus said, my house will be called the house of prayer. And the very next thing that's recorded is the lame and the blind came to him and he healed them. It doesn't say anything in there about Jesus praying for them, even though he just got done saying that this was, his house was a house of prayer. If you study the life of Jesus, most of the time he just spoke to an infirmity and people were healed. He didn't usually pray. He already knew what the Father wanted to do. Unless he said it or he saw it, he didn't do it. That's how obedient Jesus was. He had this intimate connection with the Father. And so the blind and the lame came to him, and he just healed them there in the temple. There was something that didn't happen. Because the, I call them professional, um, religious professionals, all they did was pomp and ceremony. <clears throat> so this was something new. Peter Lightheart said it this way. What Jesus was doing when he was healing them was demonstrating his authority and demonstrating the fact that he brought the kingdom with him. Amen? Amen? Anybody? All right. The temple should be a place. Well, Peter Lightheart first said this. He says, compassion for the blind and lame is true prayer. I like that. Compassion for the blind and lame is true prayer. Rather than mumbling some 
you know, mealy mouth prayer, God, if you would, could you would, would you please? You know, Jesus just spoke to the infirmities and uh, they were healed using his authority and his power. The temple, the church house, should be a place where the weak can come and be restored, where the sick can be restored. Hallelujah. And he was demonstrating that. Verse 15. When the chief priests and the scribes, those religious professionals, saw the wonderful things that he did, saw the healings, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. That means that they were very upset. They were mad as a wet hen, as we would say today. And said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfect praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. And most think that he stayed at the house of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, who lived in Bethany, and they were good friends. Um, But the religious professionals, the scribes and the Pharisees, they did not want the children to have a voice. They did not want the children to have a voice because they weren't professional, quote, unquote, like they were. But Jesus, as he's done many times, used children as an object lesson. Jesus identifies children in the temple as those who represent true disciples, giving the Lord fitting praise. Hallelujah. Because they're just praising him out of a pure heart. You know, there's no religion involved. Just a heart that loves the Lord. Jesus was telling the religious professionals, in my opinion, if you're not willing to join the children's choir, you have no place. You shouldn't even be in the temple. You know, we need to come as little children with that kind of a heart, just trusting. When you tell your children something, they just trust you. You tell them in the wintertime, put your coat on and your hat on, don't go out, you'll catch a cold. They trust you and they do it. Amen? And that's how we should be. Just trusting the Lord in, at every venue. Hallelujah. <clears throat> so what's he done so far? Jesus arrives in the city, fulfilling one prophecy after another. Hallelujah. He's declaring his kingship. He's cleansing the temple. <clears throat> He's healing the sick showing them what his house should be like. Hallelujah. Um, Demonstrating his power and authority that he brought the kingdom with him when he came. See, you can't separate the Son of God from the Spirit of God, from the power of God. Wherever he is, so that is. So if he's living in you today, uh uh-huh, Guess what's in there? Peter Lightheart had a quote. I've become a fan of this guy. Uh, for this section, I'm going to read the quote to you. 
says, the new Adamantic race does not consist of the strong or the wealthy or the well-born. The new Adamantic race is made up of the lame and the blind who are healed by Jesus. The true priests are the childlike disciples who sing his praises. Hallelujah. And he comes to inherit the earth and to gain the all authority in heaven and on earth as the son of David and the son of God. And he comes to share the authority and kingship with us. Hallelujah. He just missed a good place to shout again. He's sharing that authority and that kingship with us. We're going to rule and reign with him one day. Hallelujah. But a lot of the things we don't have to wait for till, we, till then. We can operate in right now. <clears throat> All right, that brings us to the fig tree incident. <clears throat> Verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city after he was in Bethany lodging overnight, he was hungry. And seeing the fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Surely I say to you, if you have faith, and do not doubt in your do not doubt you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So when we ask in prayer, we need to believe we receive when we pray, not when we see it, the manifestation of it. You need to believe you have it. Present tense, when you're praying for it. Hallelujah. So this section of scripture right here, he's teaching them the incredible power of a prayer of faith that's spoken authoritatively in line with the word of God, in accordance with the word of God. So when you pray in accordance with the word of God, and you release the faith that God gave you, you can expect nothing else but what you're praying for. Amen? Amen? That's the way it works. But you have to pray in accordance with the word of God, and you have to pray in faith. You have to release your faith. You can't just be a container for it. For it. You can be real strong in faith, but if you never release it, it won't do you any good. Just like if you had a million dollars in the bank, and you needed a new car, but you didn't want to spend any of it, it won't do you any good. You're still going to have to finance the car if you don't want to touch that million dollars. It's the same thing. What you might not know is a fig tree is very different than other trees. Most trees, um, the leaves come out and the buds, and then the fruit shows up. Amen? With the fig tree, it's just the opposite. The fruit is formed first, can you imagine, before the leaves are on the tree. So when Jesus came by the tree and he sees it in full leaf, it's important to know that he would expect there to be fruit on there. And there was no fruit on the tree, just like there was no fruit in Israel. <clears throat> the fig tree here, some scholars say, 
is used to designate Israel and the temple in Jesus' day. So there's a deeper meaning here. The Fig Three incident shows where things are headed in Israel, in the temple. Yes, the lesson of authoritative prayer of faith is true, and that's what most people preach on in this area. And I'm not taking anything away from that. But there's a deeper meaning here, prophetic meaning. See, Jesus is Lord of Israel. They have the land because of God's grace. They owe him fruit. Hallelujah. And likewise, we are stewards of God's kingdom by his grace. And we too owe him fruit. Now, part of bearing fruit is the fact that there's got to be growth. You know, there's the bud and then there's the fruit and it grows into maturity and then you pick it and so on and so on. But without root, without root, there'll be no fruit. So you have to be rooted and grounded in the word of God. Hallelujah. And uh, most of these guys, these professional religious people were rooted and grounded in ceremony and how important they were and that kind of a thing. Now in Matthew 21, um, just... When it talks about the mountain there, um, Jesus was talking, he says, but also, if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And, you know, you can use that for a mountain in your life and so forth. Um, Use that scripture, that's okay. But the context here, um, they were sitting on a western slope of the Mount of Olives, overlooking the Kidron Rally, looking at the mount, the Temple Mount. I've been there. And he was talking about, it's singular, he's talking about that mountain. He's saying to his disciples, you can move that mountain right there. Forget about the little fig tree, you can move that whole mountain with that kind of faith. So he's teaching them. Verse 23. Now the religious professionals are questioning his authority. What are they doing? They're looking for some credentials. (laughs) Like any professional would do, they would want to see the credentials of, you know, who's, who's authorizing you to do these things? So let's just read verse 23. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? They didn't even wait till he got done. They just interrupted him. So they wanted to know by what authority he was doing those things. Now that presented a problem for Jesus. Because if Jesus says it was by human authority, he will undermine himself. 
And if he says it was by divine authority, the priests will have grounds to act, uh, act against him. But Jesus is too smart for that, to be trapped in their trap. They were trying to trap him with something kind of blasphemy that they could hold against him. Verse 24, But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus didn't answer their question because they wouldn't answer his. They knew. Jesus set a trap for the trapper. They were trying to trap him, and he set a trap for them. And so they couldn't say too much about it. So that's where that was left. So now we're down to verse 28, the parable of the two sons. Well, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. Then he came to the seconds, said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. So right after they tried to trap Jesus, Jesus goes into a parable of judgment. And he didn't mix any words. He said, repentant sinners of the vilest kind, IRS man and a harlot will get into heaven before you. But no religious pretender that's unrepented will get in there. That's what he was saying to them. Strong words. I think 2 Timothy 3.5 pretty much uh, demonstrates what these guys were. They were having a form of godliness, but denying its power, its dunamis. And from such people, turn away, the Bible says. So they had all kinds of religious things going on, but they had no power because they had no relationship. The other thing to note here in this little parable is that working in God's vineyard requires commitment and obedience. Commitment and obedience. Commitment and obedience. You know, a lot of times people commit to things. Uh, I don't know if any of you were ever in the military. I was in the Army, and one of the things I was told before I enlisted 
was never to volunteer for anything. <laughs> and uh, we were at a place called Ford Carson, Colorado. They wanted to know if, if anybody could drive a truck. Well, everybody's hand went up except mine. <laughs> and it's a cold place out there, the foot of a mountain. And so he said, you, okay, you, 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 you. And they got about a half a dozen guys. And what they were doing was pushing wheelbarrows full of coal to the furnaces, all the different barracks. That's, that, was a, that was their truck driving job. So that's why you never volunteer in the military. It's always, you know. <clears throat> all right. Here we are, the last parable. Uh, the second parable pronounces even more judgment on Israel. I've got a couple of scriptures in closing here that aren't on your notes. If you, somebody who follows the notes, so I'll give them to you. Um, so this begins, um, this parable is like when Nathan, the prophet, was before David. Uh, if you remember that story, it's found in 2 Samuel 12, 3 to 7. When David had Uriah killed, committed adultery with his wife and then he had Uriah killed to cover up his sin and David at that time had kind of walked away from the Lord a little bit he wasn't the same man that word says he was the man after my own heart in the Bible some changes had taken place some pride had come in and these kinds of things and God sent Nathan the prophet can you imagine him going to David with fear and trembling He's going to tell the king, and he tells him this story that David didn't identify with about this guy that had this little lamb, just one lamb, and it was in his house, and it ate at his table, and it was more than a pet. It was part of the family, and they slept with him and everything. It wasn't out in the barn or out in the yard. And then there was the rich man that had thousands of lambs, and he had people that took care of him and everything. And a visitor came by. And instead of taking one of his lambs and killing it for the visitor to feed him, he took the lamb from the poor man. And David got really mad about it. He says, who is this man? He should be this, 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 and he gives all kinds of things. And the visionist, Nathan the prophet, you were that man. That took some moxie to tell the king that. And David repented. And right after that, David wrote Psalm 90, or 51 and Psalm 23, shortly after that. And that's just how it's supposed to work. You sin and you're confronted with your sin. The Holy Spirit convicts you of it. Be quick to repent. God is very gracious. We heard about his love this morning through Brother Daryl. You know, God is love. So he can't fail. The Bible says his love never fails. The only time God can fail in my life is when I do not believe him. All I got to do is believe him. Amen? Amen? He'll do all the rest. In fact, he's already done it. Jesus said, it is finished. <laughs> I just have to do one thing. Believe him. Amen. Believe him. So that's that's where this is at. So verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain 
landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. They used to build towers to watch out for animals and people stealing grapes and stuff. And he leased it to a vine dresser and went into a far country. And when the vintage time drew near, he sent the servants of the vine dresser that they might receive his fruit. And the vine dresser took his servants and beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent another servants, other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. So the landowner servants here represent God's prophets down through the ages. And we sent again and again to try to get Israel to repent. <coughs> Excuse me, to turn back to him. Verse 37. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dresser saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And a religious professional said, they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of their season. <clears throat> so right there in verse 38, where it says the vine dresser saw the son and they among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him. That's exactly what they were doing. They were trying to find reason to crucify Jesus. Verse 42, so Jesus said to him, have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone and this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation, bearing the fruits of it. Wow. When they rejected um, the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus was, all this was ordained by God. Because it will usher in the triumph as prophesied in Psalm 118, 22 and 23, which is quoted here. Jesus was always quoting scripture. Verse 43, in rejecting Jesus, they rejected the kingdom of God, which will be given to a nation. Now the term nation doesn't mean it's going to be taken from Israel and given to Africa or the United States or Canada. The term nation signifies a new people. Believers, Jew and Gentile alike, who will render God the appropriate fruit and praise, like those little children were doing. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He's certainly worthy of our praise. Amen. Amen. I'm going to read verse 44 to you in the Amplified Bible. So it's going to be a little louder, okay? 
And whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But he on whom it falls will be crushed to powder, and it will winnow him, scattering him as dust. Wow. Strong words. And that's from, uh, verse 44 is quoting from Isaiah 8, 14 and 15. I'll read that to you. Just about done here. Isaiah 8, 14 and 15. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the house of Israel, both houses of Israel, the northern and the southern kingdom, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. So there's a lot of meaning in that, but um, you know, they stumble in unbelief and they fall into this religious rhetoric that has no power. So it said those who stumble in unbelief will be broken. Something that's broken, if you drop a vase and it breaks into two or three pieces or 12 pieces, if they're not real small, you can glue that back together with Gorilla Glue, okay? (laughs) Or something similar. But whom it falls upon, it's talking about being crushed to powder and scattered like dust. Once that happens, there's, that's a point of no return. There's, there's no hope. I say the Lord's Prayer, go home, okay? Okay. So, that brings us to the first of three closings. Both of these parables compare the kingdom of God to a vineyard. A vineyard is always known as a source of blessing and a place of joy and abundance anytime it's mentioned in the Bible. But it's also a place of labor. And Jesus took the kingdom from those who stumble over it in unbelief. And he gave it to the apostles and the disciples. That would be us, modern-day disciples. He took it from his chosen people and gave it to the believers, the apostles, the Jew and Gentile believers. So the kingdom is both a tremendous blessing, but it's also a task. Peter Lightheart said this, kingdom life is a life of blessing, joy, and the wine of the new covenant. And that's absolutely true. But it's also, at the same time, we are called to produce fruit as we labor in the vineyard. I want to read a scripture in John to you that you're all familiar with. John chapter 15, verse 8. Jesus is speaking He says, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So the whole principle here is a principle of growth. 
of bearing much fruit. And that's what Israel was not doing at the time. And so that's why there's this, this whole scenario. <clears throat> See, God comes to collect, just like the landowner. He comes to seek fruit. You've heard me say this before. He's looking for a return on his investment. He's invested his word. He's invested his spirit. He's invested his only begotten son. Hmm. Second Peter 1. Verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, to the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. The virtue means excellence. So God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's given us his word, he's given us his spirit, he's given us his son to take our place on the cross. He's done everything for us. He basically emptied heaven for us. Think about that. Hallelujah. So each of us need to ask ourselves how our crop is doing. How's your fruit, Warren? Are you producing any fruit? Warren, are you producing a little fruit? Are you producing some fruit? Are you bearing much fruit? Where am I at in that scenario? That's between you and God. And there's, we don't have time to go into it, but there's fruit, personal fruit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, all those things that radiate out of us as Christians. And then there's the fruit of our labors, what we're doing for Christ, saving souls, healing. But every time you save a soul, you're pushing back darkness. And you're advancing the kingdom of God. Every time a body is healed, you're pushing back darkness. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Do we have the fruit of repentance? You know, for a nation that has killed, I lost count how many babies. We've allowed that in this country. Because we have the power to change the atmosphere of the United States and America and the world as Christians. We have all the power. And the church needs to wake up. Because when you pray prayers like the prayer of the fig tree, you pray a prayer of faith authoritatively according to the word of God. If God's word is true, you can expect his results. Amen? Amen. Amen. I mean, I have a terminal, I have been diagnosed with, uh, what do they call it? Pulmonary fibrosis of the lungs which means your lung capacity is 
like this instead of like this, okay? And that's supposed to be terminal because there's no known cure for that. But I'm not accepting that. That's the medical diagnosis. God can fix that. Amen? And give me a testimony that will save thousands and thousands of souls. So what I have to do is believe him no matter how I feel or what it looks like or how hard it is to breathe when it gets humid and just believe what his word says. As sons and daughters who agree to obey, do we then actually obey? You know, it's easy to say, yes, Lord, I'll do that. But then do we actually follow through and do it? So in this scripture, in closing here, the king has come, he's brought his kingdom. You have to come as a little child in that manner. He encourages us to use our faith that he's given us and faithfully labor and obedience in his vineyard. Be committed and faithfully labor and bear much fruit. You know, the concept is growth. And so you have to have Roots, if you're going to have fruit, your roots have to be grounded in the Word of God. And you will bear much fruit. We need to be good stewards of that kingdom. His Word, teaching and preaching His Word, healing the sick, casting out demons, meeting the needs of people, binding up the brokenhearted, etc., etc., the list goes on. So it's all about Jesus now revealing himself as a son of God. Oof. <clears throat> Lord, we just thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that your word is true, Lord God. And we just pray in the name of Jesus that you would make it real to us this week, Lord God, that we might Be good stewards of your kingdom as you set an example for us right here in Matthew 21. Hallelujah. And we'll be careful to give you all the glory and praise and honor, Lord, in Jesus' name. Um, he said to me a while ago, I'm going to go sit down, I think, but he said to me a while ago that to ask if there's anybody here that's in pain. I mean, it could be a sore foot, a sore toe, a headache, an internal problem. There's somebody in pain. Steve? A sore foot? On the outside of your foot? Yeah. Did you twist it or something? I think it was a little fractured. You think it might be fractured? 
Okay. When did you do that? Just yeah, at the beginning of the year. Oh, oh at the beginning of the year, and it still hurts. It's still sore. Still sore. <clears throat> okay. Um, let's take a moment and pray for Steve. Is that okay? Why don't you just sit right down there, Steve? So. <clears throat> just join me in a word of prayer for Steve. Um, remember, your prayers are powerful. That, you know, just release your faith to Steve, to God for Steve, okay? Lord God, we thank you for this man of God. We thank you that he's one who's labored tirelessly in the vineyard for you, Lord. And we thank you for his heart for you, Lord God. And you know the desire of his heart. It's been uh, over half a year now that he's had this pain in his foot. And Father, uh, we suspect there might be a fracture there. So in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we command that bone to just heal in Jesus' name, in his right foot, to the glory of God in the name of Jesus. We just speak to that fracture, just be made whole in Jesus' name. And we bind up all pain and command it to leave now in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Lord, we just give you the glory, we give you the praise, and we give you the honor for Steve's total and complete healing. He puts on a lot of miles in a day, going back and forth, classrooms and outside and different places. So Lord, we thank you that you've given him two good feet again with no pain to your glory and to his good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Now the thing about praying like that, I like to see everything happen instantly. But sometimes it doesn't happen instantly. It doesn't mean that God's not working. Amen? You have to keep believing. When somebody prays for you, you need to maintain that healing. You need to continue to quote healing scriptures and thank God for your healing. I had to learn that the hard way. So you can skip that part if you just listen. Just maintain it. You know, uh, I'll just keep preaching. So. <clears throat>